0: Two out of three, a single and a double, and put it across his and right on the third base line. One out, last of the night. Dragon pitches. Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby hitting a 2.92. He's got a single and a double, and he's going in the Giants' first run with a long Fighter of center. Brooklyn lead at 1-2. Thompson down the line at third, not taking any chance. Watson without too big of a lead in second, but he'll be running like the wind if Thompson hits one patrol. am go, Straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the indelible, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Half man, half podcast machine. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki. Back in the cafe, Kirk shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories want to welcome everyone in. Seamheads from around the world. Make yourself comfortable. Whatever that entails. I don't judge. I'm just going to get after it this week. We got a lot to cover here. Uh, so I just want to get right after it. Backwards K Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods or You can go to my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear this or any of my other shows and my always growing vaults of archives. I come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. I will never charge you for the content. I'm just going to keep it consistent like Carew up here. And instead of sending me your hard-earned nickels and dimes in this busted-ass economy, you can help me achieve my goals by simply rating review. I ain't scared. If you're on Apple or Spotify when you listen to your pods, I know this is a feature, uh you know, that's on there. So, you know, rate me as you see fit. I'm legit. I put a lot of work into these for my audience. So hopefully I see an abundance of five stars and comments coming my way. Also share, download, listen, all that goes without saying, right? So if you're looking for me or the show, it shouldn't be too hard. I'm all tangled up in the web, bro. The show, uh, their Twitter handle is back at back underscore K underscore podcast. If you want to email the show a question, maybe you have some comments on a particular topic, maybe I missed something, I encourage you to drop me an email to backwardskpod at gmail.com. Or, you can always find me or my content on Facebook or YouTube under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. Okay? So, look, I told you, I kind of want to get the show on the road this week as today's topic is a giant Excuse the pun. I usually do mail during this segment here, but uh, I'm going to skip that this week as, well, the baseball universe, it lost a hell of a ball player and a prince of a gentleman this past week, Mr. Maury Wilts. Without question, the greatest baseball player to ever come out of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., He grew up in the, you know, he grew up the 7th of 13 children and the Parkside Public Housing Complex in Northeast D.C. Met former Washington Center's third baseman slash second baseman uh, Jerry Pretty at a youth clinic in the 1940s, and he became instantly obsessed with becoming a Major League Baseball player. Willis recalled that he was barefoot that day, and Pretty asked him, Don't you have spikes? You got to tell your parents to get you some because you're a good little ball player. For many years during his retirement, Willis returned to D.C. to hold clinics and uh, camps for these district men kids. And there's a baseball field, just a long fly ball across Georgia Avenue from Howard University in honor of the Dodgers legend. He was a standout and uh, quarterback at Cordoza High School. He received nine scholarship offers to play college football. But instead, he signs with the Los Angeles Dodgers as a teenager. He spent nearly a decade on the farm and learned how to switch hit. Uh, He finally made the big club at 26 in 1959. By the end of the season, he's uh, the full-time starting shortstop, and he's winning a World Series ring as the Dodgers beat the Go-Go White Sox. For the next next 13 years, Willis would basically torment opponents, uh, pitchers, catchers, with that blazing speed from the top of the lineup. In 1961, he became the first black captain in Dodgers history when manager Walter Austin bestowed the honor on him. And much like Hank Aaron when he was on the verge of passing Babe in home runs, while Maury Willis endured a lot of racist taunts, threats, and mail as he was closing in on Ty Cobb's single season stolen base record set in 1915. And it was then that he became close to Sandy Koufax, who always endured anti Semitic hate mail during his career. And Sandy recalls how they would open each other's mail and throw away the most hateful ones before the other person could read it. Uh, Wills would blow past Cobb's historical mark of 96. And 1962 by swiping a hundred and four. So, I'm not going to dig real deep here. We still got a show to do. But, yeah, let's take a look at the legendary Mari Wills professional baseball career stats. Mari Wills' 14-year career with the Dodgers, Pirates, and Expos. 39.6 war. 1962 NL MVP. Seven time All Star, two gold gloves. 8,306 plate appearances, 1,067 runs scored, 2,134 hits, 177 doubles, 71 triples, 20 home runs, 458 RBI. Uh, 586 stolen bases, which is 20th all time. And that has him sitting between guys like Ozzy Smith and Juan Pierre. He led the NL six times his total bases. He was caught stealing 208 times, which is fifth all-time. And I should note, he sits between Cobb, who was caught 212 times, and Pierre, who was caught 203 times. 552 walks, 684 strikeouts, 2,513 total bases. And an 88 OPS plus with a 281, 330, 331 slash. And folks, the baseball universe lost a real scholar and a gentleman here. Dodgers manager Dave Roberts, who spent considerable time with Murray Wills. Uh, he wears his number 30 on his uniform in his honor. As far as backwards K-Pod, if you remember the sale-out review... Murray Wills is the Dodgers' third base coach, coach when the Jets steals home in Dodgers Stadium in the very last scene. And that movie takes place in 1962, the year Murray Wills broke Ty Cobb's stolen base record. So, the movie Sandlot is set in that amazing summer. And it's baseball universe is in sync with the great Murray Wills. If you haven't heard that Sandlot review... But check it out at diamondsnakejake.bobby.com or on any of your other podcast platforms. So, Mario Wills from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network and Backwards Cape 5, we salute you. Rest in peace. Godspeed. And time will not dim the glory of your deeds. And look. I apologize for that little detour that we took there. As I you know, I take a little pivot from my usual format, but I would have been remiss if I didn't acknowledge the loss of this shiny star of a baseball man. I would not be surprised if we saw a retelling of a story and more depth, in-depth manner someday here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ball players and their stories. So, with that being said, let's get down to the topic at hand this week. I see the catcher coming down, and yeah, let's load up this great runaway freight train here and get get it rolling again. As this week, we'll be taking a look at the history of a true baseball cathedral of yesteryear, the Polo Grounds at Coogan's Bluff in New York City, and first off. I love this stadium. This, Scheib Park, they're usually the two stadiums I like to play in the most when I'm on MLB 2K. But I digress. I mean, you talk about quirky. This stadium puts Wrigley and Fenway to shame. Two stadiums we've already hit on here at Backwards K-Pod. You can check those out in the archives as well. As Shy, ironically, actually. And I've said it before. I love doing stadium shows. The tradition, the history, and especially these old before-my-time cribs. It's just really cool stuff that, honestly, I have very limited knowledge of. The Polo Grounds. I mean, it's an odd name for an odd stadium. It, It was home to several baseball teams, most notably the New York Giants, until they up and moved to San Francisco After the 1957 season. It's horseshoe. Shaped grandstand. And elongated playing area. It provided for ridiculously short distances. Down the foul lines. And just as equally outrageous long distances. In the power alleys and in center field. I mean you know lazy fly ball can of corn goes out and left and you get hit a mammoth shot in the center and well if Willie Mays is out there he's going to run it down. If not you're going to have a double triple maybe in a Parker. And folks I, I, I can't stress this enough to you. Downey's foul lines, they were so short that the inches were included just to make it sound longer. So what I mean was, it was 279 feet and 8 inches to left. And it was 257 feet, 8 inches to right. So look, for all my international CMED followers, I love you. Thanks for following me. All of you, I know you do that weird metric thing. So the left field line was a mere 85.2 meters to left, and it was 78.5 meters to right field. As for center field, you could have rounded it to the nearest hundred, and it wouldn't have mattered as it stood most of the time at around 483 feet from home plate. Or if you use this crazy metric system here, it it makes it a whopping 147.2 meters. uh, Which doesn't sound that much to me. You know, next to 483 feet. But I'm told it's the same amount. So it's 147.2 meters to center. Or 483 feet. But here's the thing about polo, right off the rip, that I never knew before going down this rabbit hole, and it's why the show's a little late this week, I could have rushed it, but no, I wanted to make sure it was right, and the history of the Polo Grounds is very complex, the Polo Grounds is actually the story of several stadiums. And you'll have to bear with me because it gets a little convoluted and confusing, but the final three versions of Polo were located beneath Coogan's Bluff in upper Manhattan across the Harlem River. But there was another location for the original Polo Grounds. The first one to use the name, and the only one of what I consider five incarnations of this stadium. It's the only one to actually have Polo games played there. And that was located at the corner of 110th Street and 5th Avenue just north of Central Park and i would love to know from any of my new york audience what is there what is there at that corner now is there anything that even suggests that the polo grounds once stood there the very first one in fact it wasn't until 1880 that professional baseball was played in manhattan which I find it interesting considering the Reds were the first pro team back in 1861, so almost 20 years before there's a professional team in Manhattan. The first site of the Polo Grounds, it stood inside like this affluent neighborhood in her day. It was dominated by uh, aristocratic apartments with beautiful brownstone stoops, And it lay just north of the northeast corner of Central Park. Even though New York had been represented in the National League in its inaugural year of 1876, the team that carried the city's name actually played its games in the still-independent city of Brooklyn across the East River from Manhattan. And again, I don't live in New York. I hope I explained that right. I'm sure one of you New Yorkers will let me know if I fucked that up. Uh, again, I wanted to make sure all this was perfect. In 1880, a team called the Metropolitans was formed as a result of a partnership between John B. Day, a wealthy young merchant, and Tammany Hall. Uh, I'm sorry. He uh, was a young merchant and a Tammany Hall politician. And his partner, John Mutry, uh, met with... Uh, he didn't quite have Gay's financial means, but he had a greater understanding of baseball. His partner, John Mutrie. Now, John Mutrie loved baseball. He played for the Brooklyn-based team, and he aspired for more. He wanted to manage, but he worried about how to get the hordes of baseball fans into Brooklyn to watch the games. Now, remember, folks, there's no cars. Something we'll hit on later, ironically. But the bottom line is, A long time ago, before cars, most people, they never went more than a five-mile radius around their home. Anything more than that would take hours off your day. The only access between the two cities, again, that's crazy too, right? Brooklyn is its own city. I never knew that. Anyway, the only access between the two neighboring cities of Brooklyn and New York was a river ferry. And, you know, these cathedral arches were taking shape on the Masonry Towers at a bridge that was under construction that would link up Manhattan to Brooklyn. But the completion of what we know today as the Brooklyn Bridge, it was still, still years away. But rather than worry about how to get the bands to Brooklyn, Moutry flips the script. He says, screw that noise. Instead of worrying about how to get the people into the city of Brooklyn, I'm just going to build that shit in Manhattan. In fact, he says, you know what? They play this goofy-ass polo over here in this large building on 110th Street. Let me step to these fools. See what's up. So he approaches the polo club. He secures a lease for baseball on the grounds under the condition that he has proper financial Bankers, uh, backers with deep pockets. So at this point, Mutri begins the task of persuading the city's upper crest to invest a little cash towards its baseball team and his efforts pay off when he meets the before-mentioned John Day. With Day's money and political backing, Mutri begins uh, stocking his lineup with players from Brooklyn as well as Rochester, uh, the Rochester Hopbiters which had recently disbanded. The Hot Biters, folks. You know, like long before the Brewers and the Burn Crow, baseball had the Hot Biters. I love it. This is back in the 1880s. The Metropolitans or the Mets, as they were often called, were an independent team in the beginning. And they were not affiliated with any league. They devised a schedule that would pit them versus National League teams once the MLB season was over. In the meantime, the Metropolitans would play against a collection of top amateur teams, including those from New York colleges and independent pro teams as well. Work was underway to lay new drains, and actually... The Polo Ground was not playable as soon as mutual Day had hoped. Instead, the Metropolitans continued playing at Union Grounds in Brooklyn. The team's first game was September 15th, 1880. <laughs> That's how old baseball is, folks. September 15th, 1880. Damn, I love this sport. So, the first game on the Polo Grounds, the original one, was Wednesday, September 29th, 1880, against the Washington Nationals, a team that just a month earlier had been making the Barnstorming Rounds in Brooklyn. And more than 2,000 fans showed up in that first professional game in NYC, but it almost didn't happen as the Nats didn't show up until more than an hour and a half after the scheduled start. Again, folks, no cars, no buses, no planes, no cabs. Finally, the Nats arrived to the 6th Avenue gate. Now, the game couldn't go nine innings, obviously. Not only uh, were there no cars, but there wasn't night baseball, so no lights. So a nine game, a nine inning game wasn't in the cards. But the Metrotolo- Metropolitans, behind the pitching of Hugh One Arm Daly, defeated the District eight to three. And folks, Hugh One Arm Daly, right? He is the Jim Abbott of his day. He lost his arm when he was shot in Baltimore. And as a bunch of moron, born and raised, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. But you need to look this dude up, a real badass. I implore you, go to your Google machine and look up Hugh one Arm Daily. Dude was a maniac. Man, this fucking game. And it's history, I tell you. Okay, so. Over the next month, going into October, the Metropolitans played NL teams primarily at Polo, but a few schedule conflicts had them playing some of the games at Union Grounds in Brooklyn, as well as a field in Hoboken, New Jersey. John Day would work out a deal with the Polo Association that would free up the field on 110th Street for the following baseball season. And for the next two years, the team remained independent. They continued to play a mixture of amateur pro, pro opponents including NL teams, whenever they could. A series of events would follow that that would result in New York getting a team in both the American Association, which would go on to be the American League, as well as the NL. And here's what happened. Two teams, Troy and Worcester, were forced out of the NL, uh, leaving the league a pair of openings, two vacant spots for the Open of the 1883 season. Now, one of those spots was claimed by those filthy Phillies. It was anticipated that Day would fill the other spot by entering his Metropolitans to the NL Circuit, but he doesn't do that. Day accepts the American Association invite on behalf of the Metropolitans, so they join the American League, but he shocks the baseball universe by proclaiming he will be building a team from scratch to compete in the National League. He puts the top players off the now defunct Troy team, the best players he put on his NL team roster, and the next tier down, he would send them to the uh, (laughs) metropole. That's a tough word. Metropolitans. So, really, when you think about it, he had a farm system within pro baseball leagues. He... He had the American Association team, which would inev- inevitably, be, inevitably be the American League Metropolitans, serving as a launching pad for Dave's new NL franchise. My lips just don't seem to be working today. Again, uh, I've had some work on my mouth, and I'm doing the best I can, but I'm, I'm going down, stuck my, my lips. It's, it's unbelievable. And from this... The first of several baseball stadiums named Polo Grounds were able to provide housing for the first two Major League Baseball teams inside of New York City. By this time, Polo was no longer being played on the site. Baseball had officially taken over, and the young sport was was prepared to grow with the young country. The grounds contained a lavish and expansive Double-decked, wooden grandstand in the southeast corner of the rectangular lot. And that was near the intersection of 110th and 5th. Including the beach bleachers that extended beyond the grandstand, down the left and right field lines. The Polar Grounds had as many seats as any stadium in her day. The 1883 season kicks off with a series of exhibition games in April. The two leagues, American League, National League, they had a truce and agreed that exhibition games between the two leagues would be permissible as exhibitional affairs. And one of 5,000 fans showed up for the game between the still-named, uh, still well, I should say still-not-named New York, New York's of the National League versus the AL Metropolitans. But that crowd was puny. Compared to the uh, the turnout three weeks later on May first, when the NL season officially opened with uh, the New York New Yorks taking on the Boston Braves. Now, they probably weren't called the Braves quite yet. If you remember in our history of the Braves show, Boston went through some really weird name changes before they got to Braves. You had the Red Stockings, the Bean Eaters, the Pilgrims, the Bees. So I'm not quite sure off the top of my head when who they were at this part of the Evolution game. I'm going to assume they were probably the Boston Red Stockings. But for the sake of clarity, let's just call them the Braves here. So the gates open at 2 and... Two hours later, the old polar ground was swelling with over 15,000 people, and that included former president Ulysses S. Grant. Now, I feel I must clarify, the newspapers called this team the New York New Yorks, but the team called themselves the Gothams. The newspapers never called it that, but the team called themselves that. So I'm going to call them the Gothams, not the New York, New Yorks. I mean, it just sounds crazy coming out of my mouth. I told you this is a very complex topic this week, but I love it. I love it. I learned so much this week. Eventually, the the New York, New Yorks slash Gothams, they would be called the Giants, the name that we still see today. But... For this time period, I'm calling them the Gothams. The Gothams beat Boston. Uh, Probably they were the red stockings at this point. 75 in the first home game ever. Now, (laughs) this is where Polar Grounds history, like her stadium bones, they get get quirky. And I I feel like I've already entered this fucking Polar Grounds vortex already. Um, And this is where sometimes confusion over how many Polar Grounds stadiums there actually were. John, D's, John Day's plan of solving the dilemma of having two Major League Baseball teams but only one field was to carve out a separate diamond at the southeast corner of the lot. However, the southwest diamond wasn't ready for the home opener on May 12th, and the Metropolitans they only played like a fifth like a fifth to the, of the size of the crowd that saw the Gothams and the Braves play. Uh, This was a game in which the Philadelphia A's clobbered the Mets 11-4 in their home opener. The Metropolitans continued to play their games on the Southeast Diamond, while work continued on the Southwest Diamond. So, what I'm saying here, folks, is you have, like, this rectangular uh, exterior of the stadium, and, you know, on the other side of the stadium, like... Right on the other side of the stadium is another stadium they're building on the other half. So I guess, you know, the intentions, you know, kind of was to have like a big O, you know, if you look down from an aerial view. Now, it didn't quite end up that way. It ended up more like a bathtub. But these are back-to-back stadiums. I hope I'm explaining this well. So, usually baseball games on the polo grounds, they, they took place one at a time. However, during a two week stretch, stretch beginning May 30th, Memorial Day, uh, what year is this? 1888, 1889? Both the Gothams and the Metropolitans were at home. Fortunately, the Western Diamond was finally ready for play, although the Metropolitans quickly found out that the playing surface over on the West, it was way inferior to the Gotham setup on the southeast side of the lot. But the Metropolitans started the long day at 9 in the morning with a game versus the Red Legs. A contest that marked the official opening of the West Diamond at the Polo Grounds, and a half hour later, the Gothams played the Detroit Tigers on the East Diamond. So you got two games simultaneously in an in elongated in stadium. And when the NL game ended, Yale took on Princeton to decide the college championship. Upon its conclusion, Gothams and Detroit, they played the second game of a doubleheader. Meanwhile, the Metropolitans who beat uh, Cincinnati earlier one nothing. Uh, they were beating up Columbus 12-5, to completing a double-heavened sweep over two totally different MLB teams. And the crowds were sparks for those early games. But over the course of a day, fans, they would come and they went. And, you know, as as, more, as much as 10,000 people showed up to see baseball on Memorial Day. So, that actually sounds pretty cool. It's, it's almost like if you've ever been to an NCAA basketball tournament, and you get to see a couple games during that day. In fact, the earlier you are in the bracket that you go to these games, you get to see more games. But the quality is a lot better as you go deeper into the tournament, of course, by the way this is like the beginning of the Polar Grounds confusion. Some people consider these two fields as separate stadiums. And they may have recognized them as Polar Grounds 1 and 2. I do not. I consider this as one. Polar Grounds, number one, uh, with the ability to play two games simultaneously. Therefore, for me, this is Polar Grounds 1, not 1 and 2. Now. In an attempt to quell some of the confusion of simultaneous games, they had a flimsy canvas curtain fence erected to separate the two playing surfaces. So, like I said, center field and center field are back-to-back against each other, literally with an empty space there. So they hung a big curtain there. In fact, if a ball rolled under that canvas... That ball was still in play. The outfielder literally had to crawl under the canvas onto the other field where there might be a game in progress at the moment. He's got to crawl back under the canvas and get the ball in to your cutoff guy to to attempt to catch a runner. And like Mel Allen would say, how about that? Just imagine being at a game watching your Gothams and you see Scruffy Leatherneck over here climbing under a curtain, grabbing a ball and then going back under the curtain to catch a runner uh, trying to go inside the park. It must have been insane. They would soon remove that canvas when it was obvious it wasn't practical and it fucked with the dimensions on both fields. Many felt the grounds was big enough for one park, but not two. And This is where Polo gets even more convoluted. The Metropolitans start the 1884 season in a different stadium. Other teams are complaining about the arrangements on the grounds. And honestly, these AL guys are like, fuck the NL. We want to be separate. So the AL orders them to go find a new crib. So over the winter, John Day finds a lot between 107th and 109th along the East River. It would be accessible by, accessible by elevated train lines, as well as by water, as he had broken a deal with the Harlem Steamboat Company to stop at landings at the new park on game days. And you would think to yourself, right, uh, this is a pretty good setup, but in fact, it was not as Metropolitan Park, as it was called when it was built, uh, The site was formerly occupied by the city dump, and it proved to be a most malodorous debacle for for fans to endure. The crowds had dwindled in only five weeks, and Dave pretty much gave up on that idea. When the Mets returned from a month-long road trip in mid-July, they moved back into the polar grounds. The Southwest Diamond was now out of commission. So the Metropolitans and the Gothams they shared the Southeast Diamond for the remainder of the 1884 season. Despite their turmoil and nomadic existence, the Mets won the pennant and then lost to the Providence Grace in what is considered by historians as the first World Series matchup sanctioned by both of these leagues. This is 1884, folks. The matchups continued for like the next seven years. But the rules were flexible and they, they were always changing. There was never a set number of games. By the time it ended, it was a best of 15 game series. There was basically what I call uh, no legislative boundaries. And it was enjoyed, but it wasn't taken very seriously by the country. The fortunes of the team, it reversed in 1885. The Mets stripped of their stars, languished. Well, the recipient of those stars, the Giants, as they were now called, they were able to compete for the first time, but they still fell short of the Chicago White Stockings by a mere two games for the pennant. The Giants had literally become J.C. They now officially own the New Yorkers' hearts and minds, and clearly they were the desired baseball team. The Mets were decimated and lagging at the gate. In 1885, Erastus Wyman, who operated the Staten Island Ferry Company, bought the team, housed them on a cricket stadium out in Staten Island, and that was before it was completely dissolved by 1888. The Giants were successful during this time. In 1888, they win their first NL pennant. They beat the St. Louis Browns six six games to four in the World Series. Four of the first five games of the series were played in New York City. And those would be the final games played on the original polo grounds. For some time, there had been indications that the city was planning on extending 111th Street. Which at this point had been interrupted by the polar grounds. And in 1889, the city announced it was, in fact, going to proceed with these plans. So John Day made a few protests and a few efforts to hinder that delay, but he finally gave up. And 111th Street, it ended up running right through the heart of the field and the elegant and elaborate grandstand. And it would be replaced by a traffic circle. And the Giants were forced to look elsewhere for a new crib. By the time the 1889 season opens, the Giants are still homeless. John Day had arranged for the use of a ballpark in Jersey City, New Jersey. After only two games there, uh, Day isn't feeling it. So he sets up temporary quarters at St. George's Cricket Grounds. Out of Staten Island, ironically, the last facility used by the Metropolitans after they sold them, and finally on a location just off the Harlem River, in the southern half of Coogan's Hollow in Manhattan, it stood a lot that ran 400 feet west beneath the 155th Street Viaduct and the 460 foot north. Uh, and 4 to 60 feet north along the 8th Avenue. Dave was uh, able to acquire that land, and he pondered what to call that stadium that would be built there. He knew that New Yorkers associated his Giants brand with the Polo Grounds, so he would simply christen the new stadium the New Polo Grounds. And some people call this Polo Grounds 3. Many people like myself, they call Polo Grounds 2. And he wanted to avoid confusion, but quite honestly, it's, it's all very confusing as, as I put the research in. And I put it into context. Anyway, it's the New Polar Grounds. Polo was never played there before. It would be one of the few sports that never played there ever. But the name endured, and it was basically brand recognition in the 1890s. The entrance to the new Polo Grounds was approximately 40 feet from the stairway of the 8th 8th Avenue elevated train station on 155th Street. Access to the site was good enough for a huge crowd to show up for the first game on July 8th. Uh, Barely more than two weeks after they had begun to convert the lot into a stadium two weeks over time the facility became more elaborate and it would eventually feature the double deck grandstand home uh, behind home plate and a clubhouse behind first base the area under the third base grandstand it included horse stables if you rode in when completed it included 14,000 seats most of them were hugging this elongated left-field line along 155th Street, south of the facility, and along the right-field line, you had the uh, team's dressing quarters and, like, a clubhouse-style building, as well as seating areas. The, the Giants were already a solid baseball team, but this new crib may have energized this team as they went 29-8 and at the new... Polo Grounds, and they came away with another NL pennant. And you would think, two years in a row, team took the pennant. Nothing but smooth sailing, right? Wrong. Whereas the offseason before, Dave was worried about losing his stadium to a newly paved street. This offseason, his team of badass assets is being poached by a new league upstart called the Players League. It was formed by former Major League players in protest of corrupt and unscrupulous owners suppressing their wages. The league would include a team in New York, and more than half of the Giants roster jumped ship, including six future Hall of Famers. And they didn't have to jump far. They had built the new Polo Grounds on half of the available land, but he didn't own the other half that was owned by James Coogan whose family name lived on the bluff the new players league not only poached the Giants players they also stole their team name and now they want to lease the other half of the meadow Coogan obliges and the players league Giants built a 16,000 seat yard they named it Brotherhood Park directly across the street from the Polo grounds so to say The Players League Giants outperformed and outdrew the National League Giants, but in the end, there would be no winners, as the Players League was vastly underfunded and would fold after just one season. And although Day's Giants would survive, Day himself would not, as the financial hit he took from the Players League, it would eventually force him to sell within a few years. But now before moving his Giants team into Brotherhood Park, adding a second deck to the grandstand, and renaming the venue. Okay. Now, follow me. The new Polo Grounds, where they played at before, that would become known as Manhattan Field. While Brotherhood Park would be called, wait for it, that's right, Polo Grounds. Or, Polo Grounds 3 or 4, depending on your perspective. Again, for me, this is PG3. For others, it's PG4. It's literally your fucking call. It's so weird. Over the next 10 years, the Giants would provide the Polar Grounds faithful a heavy dose of that smash-mouth-in-your-face baseball that rubbed off on the rowdy New York fan base and made the Giants the number one home draw in 18 of 23 seasons starting in the 1902 season. Manager John McGraw, he was a master of verbal terrorism. He would craftily like bully these umpires, opponents, and even other owners. But he also had an, an amazing ability of recognizing and molding talent. While chasing his third pennant, 1908 was one of the most uh, memorable plays in the history of baseball. It, it took place at the Polo Grounds. 19 year old Fred Merkel was a part of an apparent game winning rally over the Chicago Cubs in an early September game as the two teams were battling down the stretch for the NL pennant. With the running run on third and Merkel on first, Al Birdwell hits what looks like a walk off single, but the rookie, in his exuberance and joy, never completes his jog to touch second base. The observant Cubs recognized Merkel's failure to complete the play, so they tagged him. And all this is going on with over 20,000 fans rushing the grounds because they think they won. Uh, triggering one of the, the really first big controversies in the history of baseball. When the NL ruled, it was a tie. Declaring Merkel was out, but due to darkness the game wouldn't have went into extra innings. It wouldn't have been able to because they had no lights, right? And they determined that game would... Only be replayed if the Cubs and Giants were deadlocked at the end of the season. Well, of course, wouldn't you know it? The baseball gods, they wouldn't have it any other way. The two were tied with a 98-35 record, forcing a one-game playoff at the Polar Grounds. All because of what is now lovingly known as Merkel's boner. And look, youngster, I'm not even joking. It's called Merkel's boner. Where's that Beavis and Butt-Head sound effect when you need it? And yes, the Cubs did win that makeup game, edging the Giants by a mere boner. I mean, a mere one game. The Giants had seen nine hundred ten thousand people come through their park all year, the world record in baseball attendance at that time. But no one could have foreseen the almost two hundred and fifty thousand spectators who descended upon Polo Field to watch that replay game. Anyhow. Anyway, paid or unpaid. And they say Bobby Thompson shot her around the world. It's the miracle of Coogan's Bluff. But according to my research, the true miracle is there wasn't a riot at this replay game. And no one got hurt as uh, it was literally a sea of angry Giants fans living vicariously through their team. A crowd of 40,000 jammed the park. Outside, the bluff was overwhelmed by the humanity as thousands sought a partial free view. Others climbed telephone poles and trees and there were even reports of some falling to their death, you know, from these high altitudes and falling and dying. Like, no bullshit. Some attempted to force their way into the stadium by burning down the fences behind the bleachers. I mean, it's fucking bedlam at a baseball game in 1908. I'm loving it. Again, the Giants lost that replay game 4-2. But the victorious Cubs had one goal left. And that was to get out of polar grounds alive. And it used to be a polar grounds, you had to walk across the field to get to the clubhouse... Uh, which is now in center fields, and it was a dubious custom as the team would let fans on the field after the game to more quickly reach their exits and try to haul, you know, autographs and stuff. And players would sometimes jog off to avoid these signing autographs. Well, on this day, the Cubs players were in quick, uh, full quick-step double time, as we call it in the Navy, as they were literally and figuratively running for their lives. Being chased by these angry giant Julians, convinced that the pennant had been robbed from them. In nineteen eleven, the Giants lost the first two games at the polar grounds before she caught fire the night before uh, the night after that second loss. The fire spread rapidly, engulfing all but the detached outfield bleachers. Many other ballparks had burned down during this time, especially around this time. But none burned as spectacularly as Polo. It was described as a blaze so intense that the glow could be seen 10 miles away. Well, the Giants wasted no time. I mean, they they couldn't afford to do otherwise. Owner, New owner, John Brush, he wasn't just going to mash something together quickly either. The frail and dying owner was intent on making sure that the Phoenix that rises from these ashes would become the last word in baseball architecture. To design the new stadium, Brush hired New York City architect Henry Beaumont Hertz, who specialized in theater design. John Bruss was also relieved he was, uh, he was one of the experts of his day in fireproofing. Harts gave the new structure a huge dose of ornamentation, and the higher the stadium went, the more ornate it became. And atop the roof was like these ironwork fencings. They were adorned by statues of eagles with their wings spread upward. While the left side of the grandstand was left pretty much bare on the side, the left side, on uh, the left field side, was hit with extravagant arches and other Gothic carvings. And within the stands, the Giants had every aisle seat adorned with the classic NY insignia, and that's tactic that, that would be reborn when the retro era ballpark kicks off with Oriole Park. At Cammy Yards in 1992. Optimal sidelines. Were figured into the grandstand design. As the left field level. Between foul poles. Were formed as a semicircle. To surround the foul territory. And this was done so that every seat. Was facing directly towards the pitcher's mound. The upper deck followed suit. Except for the extended portion. Down the right field line. Which straightened out and continued out. Past the foul pole. And. Hopefully, I explained that well enough for you. If not, go get your Google machines and check it out. Now, the project ultimately cost $500,000 for the steel and concrete rebuild, which in today's broken economy is about $15.6 million. It took a mere 10 weeks to have her bones set up to accommodate for 16,000 seats and to play ball while construction crews still worked on her. Building The structure would continue through that 1911 season and she would be at full strength to accommodate a capacity of 34,000 fans just in time for the Giants to go to their first of three straight World Series appearances all of those resulting in defeats. The Reborn Polar Grounds was highly acclaimed, nationally praised Alan Sangry of Baseball America called it The mightiest temple ever erected to the goddess of sports. It should be noted that owner John Brush, who is in really poor health condition at this time, he lobbied to have it called Brush Stadium, but the name never stuck. never caught on. And that's kind of a shame because uh, Mr. Brushier here, he pretty much sunk all of his capital in the endeavor. And he had very little time to soak it in a handicapped brush could be seen watching the game from his car and a notch of foul territory grass near the right field foul line pole. And Mr. Day was right about one thing. All those years ago, everyone liked the name Polar Grounds and they associated it with the, uh, the Giants brand. So it remained Polar Grounds or PG4, PG5, whatever your perspective is. And While the Giants were rebuilding Polo, the AL New York Highlanders offered up their ballpark, the Plainwood and Hilltop Park, as a temporary refuge. And folks, this was a generous offer, considering McGraw and John Brush, they had treated the Highlanders like second-class citizens since setting up camp in New York City. McGraw, he had been kicked out of the AL back in 1902, and he had real contentious and spiteful relationship with the American League. And, you know, it was bad. He really hated the American League. I mean, to his core. And he certainly hated Babe Ruth and those New York Yankees. However, well, they weren't the Babe Ruth Yankees yet. However, by the time 1930, 13 had rolled around, John Brush is dead, and McGraw's mellowing just a little bit, maybe? The Giants responded by allowing the Highlanders to rent out the Polar Grounds for the next 10 years. Upon jumping into their new crib for the next decade, the Highlanders changed their name to the New York Yankees. The introduction of A.O. Ball to Polar Grounds meant the presence of star power, as the junior circuit was becoming the more powerful league. The great, chillest Joe Jackson... Playing for Cleveland in 1913, he became the first player to hit the ball out of the ballpark. When he bla- when he hit a blast that skipped off of that right field roof and completely out of the stadium. He was also one of the two stars that to drop on center field. That other guy, you know, Babe Ruth, the Bambino, as we know. He can pitch a little back in, you know, his Red Sox days. But on May 6, 1915, the Babe would be the first uh, the Babe would hit his first of 17, 714 home runs at Polar Grounds versus the Yankees. And when he returned a month later, he drops Dong again. The Yankees take notice, and the wheels of history are set in motion. Ruth loved the Polar Grounds. You know, with that 257-foot, 8-inch long right-field line, and that roof that hung over the right-field uh, playing surface. But, to be fair... That dude could drop dong anywhere in any part. Through the 1919 season, with the Red Sox, Ruth bashed 10 home runs and drove in 24 runs versus the Yankees in 95 at-bats in polo grounds. Now, to put that in perspective, 10 home runs in a season was a hell of an achievement on its own, merit back in that day. Ruth had hit 10 at Polo grounds alone for the last of those ten home runs. Ruth did one better than Shulis Joe. He hit a shot that cleared the right right field roof without touching it. That home run was his twenty eighth of the year, breaking Ned Williamson's all time season record. And of course, we all know, for the most part, the story of the Red Sox selling the Babe to the Yanks, and the Babe took the Polo grounds. Like fish and water. In 1920, he hit 399 with 29 bombs at just polo grounds alone. A year later, he would belt 32 home runs at the grounds while hitting four. So the babe loved the polo grounds. And because of it, the dead ball era, era had been officially killed. John McGraw, oh boy. I mean, he's just consumed consumed, he still loathed the American League, and he was clearly triggered by Babe Ruth and his popularity, his growing fame, in his own crib. He would convince the owners to kick the Yankees out when their lease expired in 1922, believing that the Yankees would have a difficult time finding any new land in Manhattan, and any ideal spot outside of the island to build their park. The Yankees, they did have a hard time finding land in Manhattan, but they struck gold, finding premium land in the Bronx, literally right across the Harlem River, Coogan's Bluff, and Polo Grounds. And they had a better rail access. The Yanks would build the majestic house that Ruth built, and it would be ready by 1923. And the stadium, it had to be a daily reminder to the Giants and to John McGraw here how the spite got the best of them. And honestly, it You know, he had a couple pennants after this, but it kind of marks the beginning of him, you know, jumping the shark. This is where his decline begins. And I'm sure one day we'll cover the great John McCraw. So, in response to Yankee Stadium, the Giants decided to expand the polo grounds to 50,000 seats. Not so much to draw more baseball fans, but to lure other events to the ballpark as a means to produce revenue streams. The double-deck grandstand was continued down the line, straightened out and rather than curved around the infield, giving it this bathtub aerial view. And then it took a sharp turn around the foul poles towards center rather than enclosing the second deck completely. Centerfield was separated by a tall, dark green that rose like a castle some 100 feet in the air. It served as the batter's eye and it served as space for both the clubhouses and the Giants' main office and included a covered area at the far back which sheltered horses, chairs, and all kinds of groundskeeping keeping equipment. It was the furthest center field distance in all of baseball as the wall was 500 and feet from home plate at her maximum distance, outside of center field, the polar Grounds' bizarre outfield shape it remained the same. And rather than cradle the infield in a semi-circular fashion like most ballparks we see today, the grounds outfield wall shot away from the foul poles' uh, placement in a straight line parallel to the imaginary line from home to center. And then, via a rounded corner, it made a 90-degree turn towards center. Again, running straight. Outfielders on the corners, they had to play back towards center field because any ball striking the parallel portion of the wall, and you can expect the ball to skim towards deep center rather than bouncing back to the infield. So, when you look down on the stadium from the top, because of its rectangular plot of land, it looks like a, well, it looks like a J almost, and it looks like it fits a bathtub in there. And it's certainly different than the traditional rounded area views we see today because the field, nowadays, they bowl around the infield. These were straight lines that ran with the blocks of the, the city blocks. Additionally, uh, left field had it real tough. The upper deck in left field, get this, folks, it extended 20 feet over. Fair territory. This actually made that 279 feet and 8 inches in left field that I was telling you about. It's more like 250 feet if you hit, you know, with just the most modest of launch angle. Left field would struggle with keeping, you know, left fielders, they would struggle with, you know, just simply keeping pop pop flies within their sight with this overhang obstructing their view. And the quirks continued in the alleys, some four hundred and fifty feet away from home plate, against the tall wall at the corner and right center field and left left center field lay the bullpens. They were the only ones placed in the territory of a major league yard at that time. The only difference, and the Giants have always liked that. You know, they've always liked their you know their their bullpens on the field. Although they finally did make a bullpen. But it's really weird about them. They were like that in Candlestick. They were like that here in Polo Grounds. And the only difference... The savvy Giants, they left the opposing bullies to ro- ro- roast in the sun while the Giants sat in a shame with a comfortable canopy draped over their bully. In 1947, Phillies manager Ben Chapman, the same one who made bigger headlines that year for his racist taunts from the dugout directed at Jackie Robinson, he kept his relievers in the dugout rather than sacrifice their skin cells on a stormy New York summer afternoon. His protests were heard And the Giants eventually installed a bullpen roof for the visitor side as well. In 1925, the New York Giants of the fledgling NFL, they started up as a new franchise... And made themselves quite at home at the bathtub configuration that seemed to accommodate football as easily as baseball. In fact, many would say that the layout of the stadium favored football better. I, you know, it comes from it was originally a polo field, a, a polo ground. That's that's the original concept of the stadium. So it kind of stayed within that context, but it incorporated a baseball field inside of it. Uh. And we also, you know, it favored football better in a lot of ways. Major uh, college football games like Army and Navy, they appeared there nine times at that venue, uh, competing in that rivalry. The Polo Grounds also saw Jack Dempsey take on Luis Verpo on September of 1923 in a boxing match that drew 82,000 spectators. The largest gathering for any event at the Polo Grounds. The structure that resulted from the 1923 expansion would by and large remain the same to our last days. Although in 1940, the Polar Grounds joined the growing list of ballparks being fitted for lights as the Giants beat the Braves in the first night game in Polar Grounds history 6-2. to two. The eight light towers placed upon the roof cost $125,000 which is equivalent to $2.6 million in the 2022 economy. And some things remain unchanged to the chagrin of many. The two handed operator scoreboard located behind each foul pole were criticized as being too slow and antique, and groundskeepers had piles of dirt underneath the grandstands to even out the playing field above the polar grounds landfill. It was said that the outfield sunk so altered, managers could only see the top third of their outfielders from the dugout. And probably intentionally, the Giants, for some reason, had an infield that didn't lie flat. It rose 21 inches towards the edge of the mound, and it's called the it's called the turtleback tactic. The strategy was enjo- endorsed by John McGraw, but successor Bill Terry would eliminate that practice in 1932. Members of the press box were happy to hear there would be an upgrade to the press box, and a new one would be built behind home plate. But it didn't take long for the Scribes to hit the new box. It uh, was face-melting hot. It was protected with chicken wire and had no bathroom. The Giants ignored the writers and their pleas. And they even added insult to injury when a much nicer press box was built for the football writers atop the second deck behind right field or, as translated on a gridiron layout, the 50-yard line. Support for the Giants was bigger than ever at the end of World War II. But a crazy phenomenon took over in America when our boys returned home. People went car crazy, which gave birth to the suburbs. Stadiums like Ebbets Field, for example. They only had parking for about 2,000 cars. And it just wasn't going to cut it in a bustling city like Brooklyn after World War II. Combine that with the stagnant gates and the unsafe neighborhoods as poverty grows in Harlem... And the projects arose, including a group of eight high-rise units to the immediate north of the park. And Bernard Doyle, a former manager for James Cinderella Man, Braddock, uh, if you remember the movie that came out about him. He sat in a seat to watch a Doubleheader at the Polo Grounds on July 4th in 1950 when he was struck by a bullet to the head, dying instantly. Unfortunately, it was a 14-year-old kid from a uh, rooftop south of the grounds shooting straight in the air, celebrating the 4th of July, and he would be jailed for years. As early as 53, rumors began to swirl by the Giants possibly sharing Yankee Stadium or possibly moving to Minneapolis or San Francisco. One by one, new owner Horace Stodem shot the scuttlebutt down, but meanwhile, the football giants, they announced they were done with Polo Grounds in 1955, and they themselves migrated to Yankee Stadium. Robert Moses, the city's master builder, was pressuring the Coogan Estate to sell the land so he could build more high-rise project buildings. And the future of the Polo Grounds was sinking like the Titanic. The Giants were briefly in discussion to build a massive 110,000-seat stadium called Polo Grounds, of course, on the west side of Manhattan along the Hudson River. But the project was estimated at $80 million, which is $800 million in today's economy. And honestly, it just truly collapsed under the weight of its own ambitions. The final nail in the coffin for the Giants at Polar Grounds and for the baseball universe in New York City in particular was when the Dodgers bolted for L.A. The Giants, watching their hated rival flee west, they were now intrigued and they began listening to what San Francisco was offering. The Giants decided to follow suit and left for the West Coast as well. Harry Stoneham he met the press in the summer of 57, and he said, I feel bad for the kids in New York, but I haven't seen many of their fathers at the Polar Grounds as of late. Before a crowd of 11,606 on September 29, 1957, the Giants played their final home game at the Polo Grounds. A slew of former players, and John McGraw, uh, his widowed wife, they showed up. And there wasn't a dry face in the stadium that day. The Giants fell to the Pirates 9-1. And the players bolted for the clubhouse and straight to San Francisco to begin their new baseball life. The Giants, they were going in body, but not in contractual spirit. They still owed over a hundred thousand they still owed over a hundred thousand dollars in rent. Till 1962, so the team began look, booking events at the Polo Grounds while enjoying this new life out on the West Coast. And they booked things like Catholic mass, Billy Graham revivals, mass Jehovah Witness group sessions, NAACP conventions, as you know, well as other things. Baseball also threatened to return to the Polo Grounds as the Reds were using the old bird to leverage a better parking situation out of Crosley Field. Again, folks cars. Just as it seems the grounds were finished. Along came its final two tenants. The New York Titans football team who would go on to be the Jets and the expansion NL New York Mets. While the Giants continued to pay rent on polar grounds while in San Francisco, Tay pretty much did zero upkeep and she was slowly collapsing in on herself. The ironwork was rusty. The press box area, which was always you know awful, it was barely functional by now. The seats old. Uh, the seats were old and green from the oxidation and the dirtiness. The Mets had originally rejected playing at Polo, but Shea Stadium was was going up slower than they expected, and the Yankees said no way to in Yankee Stadium. So the Mets spent $50,000 in an attempt to spruce her up, but it was like, you know, putting makeup on a corpse, completely cosmetic. Before moving to Shea, the Mets were 56-105 and 105 at Polar Grounds over the span of two years, enjoying one last hurrah when the Giants and Dodgers returned home from San Francisco and L.A. respectively, and for the first time. In the 18 games versus those two in 1962, Four hundred seventy-eight thousand people showing up to watch the Mets battle the city's traders, and overall, Polo Grounds could still draw a crowd, even looking old and beat up. The Mets drew nine hundred twenty-two thousand people in nineteen sixty-two, a then record. They would top it in nineteen sixty-three when they would go one point zero eight million fans. But the Mets would bid farewell to the old bird on September eighteenth, nineteen sixty-three, before a turnout of only one thousand seven hundred fifty-two spectators, or about one fan for every project unit that would be built on the hollow ground in the ballpark's place. The Mets would lose five to one to Filthy, and in the game, hitting and uh, the game by hitting into a double play, and. There would never be another major league baseball game played at Polo Grounds. There would be more baseball played there, though. One more time, as a Latin All Star team featuring dudes like Roberto Clemente, Juan Marichal, Orlando Cepeda, uh, they came. They came to the crib. They played before fourteen thousand two hundred thirty-five fans. So you know, people would still go if the draw is right. The very last sporting event that took place there. Uh, came two months later when the New York Jets lost to the Buffalo Bills nineteen to ten in an AFL matchup before only six thousand five hundred ninety two fans, and that leaves just one more event in her long, quirky, complicated life, and that was her demolition. It began April tenth, nineteen sixty four when the very same wrecking ball that took down Ebbets Field a few years earlier was being used to bring down the Polar Grounds. And folks, I think that is finally the end of the Polar Grounds story. But it's really not. I'm sorry, the show went on a little longer. I worry about my audience after listening to me for more than an hour. But this building is not only about the history of baseball. It's really a story about professional New York City sports, and and, you know, in the beginning of pro sports in that city, which, love them or hate them, all American sports need New York to validate the product. Facts. So much stuff I didn't hit on, and look, I never knew there was five or six uh, polo ground stadiums. Once I realized that, well, first of all, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was going to be a little bit late. <laughs> but I'm still here on Tuesday giving you that free baseball smoke, right? Jake the freaking snake. I never knew there was, you know, these five, six polar whatever. And once I realized that, I knew this was going to be a deep, deep show. We didn't talk much about the shot hurt around the world. Although I do have that soundbite in the beginning. I told you a few weeks ago about the death of Ray Chapman. That happened at the Polar Grounds. I tried to stick with the five or six incarnations of the park. And most of Polo's big stories. But, you know, you know, I just ran out of time. We'll probably cover, in the future, uh, those stories that eventually shot around the world. And some more uh, Polar Ground stories, I'm sure. And we'll probably do that here at Baggage K-Pop, where we collect ball players and their story. There are plenty of things out there about Polo Grounds if you're interested. Truly a plethora of information just waiting to speak to you. And with that, it's time to wrap this one up. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed presenting it to you. Incorrigible seam heads and like the Hydro, I chop off one baseball topic and two more appear. Next week, I'll be digging into the greatest power hitting catcher to ever live. And I ain't talking Mike Piazza, you met freaks. I'm talking Josh Gibson. I'm so excited. I believe Josh is our first biographical look at a Negro League star here. I know we did Moses Fleetwood Walker, but he was long before the Negro League. So, yeah, Josh Mother Effin Gibson. Here at Backwards K-Pod next week, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, got their nose in their phone looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.